This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Not every year in history is very exciting. Or many years, there's nothing that we really know about. And there's some years that just go, come and go and they fade from our memory. But there are many years that stand out in our mind. Like if I said the year 1776, books have been written about that year. In fact, I was on the USS Bainbridge, headed over to Scotland. We were doing, a, we were doing an exercise with the Brits and we had two British lieutenants riding along with us. We're in the wardroom, and the captain says, chaps, could you kind of host them? And I guess that meant have tea. Uh, and so uh, we're sitting there, and we're enjoying tea, which is really just coffee. Uh, and uh, they said, uh, hey, you got the library here. Any good books? So we walk over to the bookshelf, and wouldn't you know, David McCullough's book, 1776, was sitting right there, and I could not resist and so I take the book off the shelf and I said, this is a must read, a page turner. Uh, and uh, I highly recommend it. Of course, that's why they think we're just a bunch of arrogant Americans. Uh, but, uh, but we write books about 1776. Hey, they did read it though. Or maybe if I said 1517, the year Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Or 1929. 2001, 2020. These are years that merely need a mention. And automatically you think of stock market crashes, terrorist attacks, COVID. Maybe years are special to you. I mean, we all celebrate 1979 when a beautiful 8-pound, 15-ounce, 21-and-a-half-inch baby boy graced this world. That's me, by the way. I'm the baby boy born in 1979. But maybe a year when recalled reminds you of a wedding, a birthday, or maybe even the death of a loved one. Years are important to us. But if I asked, hey, what happened in A.D. 60? You'd probably not recall anything. No major event, at least nothing major has passed through the annals of time to us to commemorate the year of our Lord, 60. But did you know the year 60 is the first identifiable year for which a date is cited complete with month, day, and year? What do I mean by that? Well, February 6, 60 was part of a graffiti found on the walls of the ruins of the ancient Roman city of Pompeii, the same Pompeii that was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. In AD 60, the Roman Empire was continuing to expand as they defeated the Roxolani, a tribe in Eastern Europe. With the defeat of the Roxolani, the Roman Empire now reached the Danube River in modern-day Hungary. But the empire also continued to expand south. In AD 60, Nero... He dispatched his own Praetorian Guard under two centurions to explore the ancient city of Sheba in what is modern-day Sudan. And so this marked the empire's furthest penetration south into Africa. Also in AD 60, 
The Romans finally defeated the Druids in Britannia and practically completed the Romanization of the Britons. In AD 60, Agrippa II, the last of the Herodian dynasty, continued his rule in northeastern Judea. And it was him in AD 60 that the Apostle Paul stood before him and pleaded his case at Caesarea Maritima and asked Agrippa, Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And it was probably in that same year that perhaps some of the saddest words ever spoken when Agrippa replied to Paul's question, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And with that, Agrippa granted Paul's request and referred Paul to Caesar for judgment. Later in AD 60, on his way to Rome, Paul was shipwrecked in Malta. Of course, he eventually reached Rome, and maybe it was from there in Rome where he wrote his epistle to the Philippians. And it was in AD 60 that many think James wrote his epistle. So while we might look at AD 60 as a rather boring and benign year, it may also have been the year that we received, by inspiration, several books of our Bible. But still, it's relatively forgettable. The Roman Empire was expanding. Paul was certainly suffering for the cause of Christ. But even Agrippa admitted to Festus that he was willing to let Paul go, but was simply honoring Paul's request to appeal to Caesar. I think it's interesting that Paul appealed to Caesar, to the emperor, knowing full well who he was. Or at least we know Paul's intellect, so we would assume he would have known who the emperor was. He was appealing to Nero. And I'm sure we have all heard the stories of Nero. He allegedly played the fiddle, or a lyre, while the city of Rome burned. And he did murder his own pregnant wife by repeatedly kicking her in the stomach. He eventually became an enemy of the Roman Senate, and he was banished. But all this would start around 61 or 62. And so by 60, he was still considered normal. I mean... He did kill his own mom in 59, uh, but she wasn't a saint herself. <laughs> she allegedly poisoned his uncle, Claudius, to help him get to the throne. And she had many of her political rivals murdered. But in AD 60, Nero was seen to be a fairly good emperor. He did have some extravagant building programs, but many hailed his early administrative rule to great acclaim. A generation later, Emperor Trajan... He claimed his predecessor's rule was an example of good and moderate government. And Nero had many fiscal reforms, such as placing tax collectors under more strict control by establishing offices to su supervise their activities. Nero even allowed slaves to file complaints about their masters for their treatment. So while Paul was making his way towards Rome and to meet with Nero, and all this is going on in the empire, there's another apostle who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, began to write his epistle in A.D. 60. It's possible he, too, was writing from Rome. That was the apostle Peter. And, of course, we know his epistles as First and Second Peter. Now, there's no biblical evidence that supports that Peter was ever in Rome. But Peter does conclude the first epistle of Peter by saying, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. That's in 1 Peter 5.13. 
we do know for certain we do not know for certain whether this refers to the actual Babylon or to Rome. But Babylon was a common nickname at the time for the city of Rome. However, we can also assume that if Peter was in Rome, he had to have been there for some time. But Paul's epistle to the Romans, which was written in AD 57, greets some 50 people in Rome and doesn't even mention Peter. And certainly he would have known Peter personally. Luke never mentions Peter being in Rome, even in Acts 26, Luke's narrative of Paul's arrival there in AD 60. Luke also never mentions Peter as one of Paul's visitors while he was under house arrest in Rome. You would think that if Peter was there and still alive, the two would have certainly visited each other. Tradition says that Peter died by crucifixion with his arms outstretched at the time of the great fire of Rome in the year 64. If so, Peter was probably a victim of, those, of the Emperor Nero and those Christians that he wished to blame for the disastrous fire that destroyed Rome. Also, according to tradition, Roman authorities sentenced him to death by crucifixion, and supposedly he was crucified head down, as he did not want to die, as he, as tradition says, in the same manner of his Savior. But Babylon, it could also be Antioch. Peter concludes his epistle with a mention of Silvanus, who was Silas, and Marcus, who was John Mark. Both Mark, John Mark and Silas are mentioned in 1 Peter. And both of those guys were former travel companions of Paul. It was Silas who chose to continue traveling with Paul when Barnabas and John Mark separated in Acts 15. At some point, Silas and John Mark end up with Peter in Babylon, and they get mentioned at the end of 1 Peter. In the end, we just don't know whether Peter was in Rome or not, and whether, when, or, or when he wrote his two epistles. And we don't really know the exact date. Honestly, these two points of trivia of when and where are not terribly important. If God wanted us to know them, he would have told us. And they would have included in the inspired word of God. Nevertheless, I do think having a general idea of the date and the place of Peter's epistles help us to build some context for his writings especially when we consider the content of the epistles, especially Peter's first epistle. And that's the focus of my message this evening. I want to introduce this first epistle of Peter to you, and Lord willing, encourage you with something that Peter wrote in his letter to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And I think we can find it helpful in our current situation today, for I do see several similarities from Peter's geopolitical context to what is going on in our world today. The world in AD 60, if that was the time, was relatively peaceful. The, but the clouds of persecution were on the horizon. Until this point in history, the persecution of the church was very localized to Jerusalem. Well, there was persecution as we will see in a minute from the book of Acts, that persecution was by the Jews against Jews who deny, and against the Jews, and it was done by Jews who denied that Jesus was the Messiah. The great Roman persecution that was going to occur under Nero was still about four years away. So the early church, 
though not completely untouched, had not yet been subject to the persecution that took Christians into the Roman arenas. But not all the Christians were in Jerusalem either. They were beginning to scatter throughout the known world. And just as Peter was writing to physically scattered strangers, so we find ourselves in the 21st century, Christians who are spiritual strangers in an ever-increasingly hostile and strange land. And we can find comfort and instruction from 1 Peter, even though the epistle, it wasn't written to us. As you read the epistle, you'll find clues of who Peter is writing to. He says things like this, the times of your ignorance and your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers. Here's another one. In time past, we're not a people, but are now a people. And the time past may suffice to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. He separates and he says, whoever he's writing to, he's saying, you're not Gentiles. These are all descriptions that can only describe Jews. And Peter uses the word strangers in the first verse, followed by some very real places to demonstrate that this epistle is not just metaphor. The people who are to be the recipients of this letter are clearly specified. In John chapter 7, verse 35, we see an instance that might shed some light on what we read in 1 Peter 1. In John, Jesus has told the multitude that in a little while, he was not going to be with them. They would look for him, but would not be able to find him. And where he was going, they wouldn't be able to come. And to this, the crowd asked themselves, whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto, listen what they said, will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? That word dispersed is the Greek word diaspora. This dispersion mentioned in John was a result of the Assyrian defeat of the kingdom of Israel and the Babylonian defeat of Judah years before. But that was a dispersion of the entire nation. We see another aspect of diaspora in Acts. In fact, pastor preached a message on Acts 8 back in February. In his message called Scattered for Preaching, pastor talked about this dispersion in Acts 8.1. It's what it says. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Remember I said it was localized. It was at Jerusalem. Which was at Jerusalem... And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And remember, Pastor reminded us up to, uh, that up to this point, the church was only in Jerusalem, and God saw fit to use persecution to get, as Pastor said it, to get the church out of the nest and drive them to areas they did not plan to go. That word scattered in Acts 1.8 is the word diaspora. Another instance of this word is in James 1.1. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Again, this is probably a reference to the general dispersion of the entire nation here in James. Because it seems to have been the recognized name for all Jews who did not live in Palestine. They were dispersed. And in 1 Peter, the word rendered by strangers there 
means people who are resident for a time amongst strangers. It might, for instance, describe a people like Americans who live abroad without being naturalized in the country they're living. And there's a close connection with actual geography, so it seems this is literal. It's not metaphoric. There's a close connection, or later we're going to see in 1 Peter, we will see that there is uh, this metaphoric concept of strangers, but in the first verse, it's literal. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. That's the metaphor, a spiritual understanding of stranger. But in 1 Peter 1.1, these are literal strangers in foreign lands. Palestine, it's Palestine and not heaven is the home that they are longing for. Look what he says. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are actual places that seem to be a generic composition of Asia Minor. These actual places are not just some abstract world of a place of sojourn. It is clear that the Apostle Peter is the apostle of the circumcision writing specifically to those of the circumcision. Yet in 1 Peter 1, 2, Peter adds some very important words. These aren't just to general Jews all over the known world. Peter adds the words, the blood of Jesus Christ. And we see that these aren't just Jews. These are Christian Jews who have been scattered from that persecution we read about in Acts chapter 8. So this epistle is written to a specific group of people. Christian Jews who have been scattered abroad. Now, Peter is not denying that the gospel is for the Gentile. Remember, it was Peter who had been accused by his fellow Jews of eating with Gentiles when he went to the house of Cornelius. And he told those Jews that, here's what he said. He said, he remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? Paul acknowledged that Peter's mission was to the Jews as well. In Galatians, Paul recalls his meeting with Peter and the other church leaders at the Council of Jerusalem. When they saw that the gospel of the circumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. In other words, what he's saying is, I was supposed to go to the Gentiles, and Peter was supposed to go to the Jew. Still, Peter writes in his epistle a very ethnocentered gospel. It is a gospel in 1 Peter for the Jew. So, 1 Peter is a Jewish epistle written to Jews, with very Jewish themes. It's very different from the Pauline epistles that were written to Gentiles. In fact, you can comb both of Peter's epistles and you'll not find the word church mentioned. These are Jewish books to Jewish people. So you say, why do you tell me that? What do we do with that? Do we, as some hyper-dispensationalists would say, let's just ignore it then, it's not to us. Not if we believe, and we do, that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. Peter's writings are still of great benefit to us. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Though not every book in the Bible was written to us, it was all written for us. And I think there is much we can get from 1 Peter. 
So let's dive into this tremendous book. We will not get far, and I'm quite content with finding a suitable stopping point and picking it up some other time. But this evening, I simply want to introduce this wonderful epistle to you. And I would like to key in on a phrase found in verse 17 of chapter 1. I think this epistle, though written 2,000 years ago, to a nation scattered abroad, amongst which are interspersed Jewish Christians, I think this epistle will help us today to pass the time of our sojourning here with fear. That's the primary purpose of this book, to show believers, regardless of ethnicity, how to live in a world that hates them. Now, I think it is helpful to highlight a few words in this phrase we read in 1 Peter 1.17. Look again at the verse. Let me read it again. That you may pass the time of your sojourning here with fear. Look again at the verse, and I want to highlight three words. The words are pass, the word sojourning, and the word fear. The word pass in verse 17 is the same Greek word that is translated conversation in 1 Peter 1 verse 15. Just a few verses ahead, Peter is attending now in verse 17 to bring us back to that initial instruction he says in 15. Remember he says in verse 15, be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That word conversation has a deeper meaning than our modern understanding of just communication out of our mouths. An early 17th, an early 17th century understanding English of this English word conversation, it was to, to encapsulate your entire behavior. How you talked, but also how you walked. I have to say it again because I cannot come to this and say that without hearing my youth pastor say, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. All right, I'll say it again. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. All right? What you do matters. Christian, Peter tells us to be holy in our conversation. In other words, be holy in everything you do. Or as we tie it to verse 17, be holy in how you pass your time. In other words, as obedient children, be holy in every aspect of your conduct. So we see the word pass in verse 17, and it reminds the Christian of his behavior while passing time on this earth, his conversation, his walk, and his talk. But what time is that? We cannot forget that we are just passing through, and thus we are not citizens on this earth but we are sojourners. Now, this word sojourn is not the same as diaspora that we saw earlier. At the beginning of the epistle, Peter calls his audience strangers. And if you recall, that was literal. And why did he call them strangers? Because they were not, they were not citizens of the country that they were in. And this word is very similar, but it is different. This, though, is the metaphor. It's a, use of, a metaphoric use of the word. In fact, the word is going to come up again in, in, in the letter in the second chapter in verse 11. But here, Peter is telling 
the physically scattered Jews of the diaspora that they are also spiritual strangers just passing through a land in which they are supposed to live holy lives. Why are they just sojourning? Because if you went to verse 4 of chapter 1, they have not yet come into their incorruptible inheritance. Peter is telling them to be sure that they are passing their time walking and talking with holiness and not to forget that they are just passing through this temporary world. But he says, and if you wish to do, but he says, if you wish for favor from the Father, see that your conduct is characterized by fear. This fear is not cowardice or even superstition, but it drowns out all other fears and begets true fortitude. The righteous dare do anything but offend God. That's the type of fear. Peter was telling his scattered Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, his brothers and sisters by both ethnicity and by faith, that they were supposed to live holy lives in this temporary world, and they were to do it out of fear of God. And the same instruction that helped our Christian predecessors 2,000 years ago is the same instruction for us today. Peter was telling them, I know the world hates you. And I know there are those who want to kill you for what you believe. But live, you still must live holy lives. You need to realize this is just a temporary place. And you need to do this and remember this out of fear of God. So throughout the rest of 1 Peter, Peter gives very practical instruction on how to live, these whole, live a holy life. I love the epistle of 1 Peter. It is packed with so much. You'll see verses like, love the brotherhood, honor the king. Simple instructions that are so easy to understand and so hard to do. But they are easy to grasp. They are concepts that are not far from us. And we can take what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago and apply it to Christians living in 2023. It's just as practical, and it's just as relevant. But let's go back, if we could, for just a few moments to revisit some of the groundwork that Peter felt necessary to lay. He didn't just tell the Jews scattered throughout Asia Minor to just, hey, live holy lives. And then he said, okay, live holy lives, and here's how you can do it. No, he began his epistle with some incredible reasons that lay the basis for the rest of the letter. And to see these foundational truths, would you go back with me to the beginning, and let's read the opening of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it begins like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect. Now that's a fascinating word and is an even more fascination after establishing that this epistle was written to Jews. But he says, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or testings, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. In this passage, I'd like to highlight three phrases that Peter uses to encourage his Jewish audience as to why they need to live holy lives. And I think we can use these same three phrases to encourage us to today because they're just as true for us. Let me give them to you quickly and I'll be done. Here they are. First, this is the first phrase Peter says. We have been begotten to a lively hope. Verse 3. Secondly, he says, we are kept by the power of God. Verse 5. And then, Thirdly, and finally, he says, we will be found unto praise and honor and glory. I think it is fascinating that these three things, something in the past, something that's happening now, and something that's going to happen in the future. Sometimes I think we tend to get enamored with what the future holds for us. And we look forward to heaven and we say, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for the sweet by and by, and I'm just going to hold on to the nasty now and now. We are promised some pretty incredible things. But we forget sometimes, looking so much into the future, we forget what our God has done for us in the past. Or perhaps we praise God for saving us. And we look to our past and we praise God for our salvation, but we forget that he is doing something very good in the present. I think we get too pessimistic. In the end times, perilous times will come. People grow waxing worse and worse and worse. And we tend to say, Lord, please let's let it get worse so you can come back. And we become very pessimistic. I used to have a history professor in college uh, and uh, he used to say something like this. He says, uh, uh, the past is already gone, and the future is not for us to know. All we have is a gift right now, and that's why we call it the present. It's where we're at. It's where we are. We have the present. Or maybe the present is all we're looking at right now. And because we're looking at the world around us, and we say, oh, Lord, this is all I really have. We forget about the past and we fail to look to the future. But Peter here gives us three things to help us live holy lives. He says, think about what's happened in the past. Think about what's happening now. And I want you to think about what's going to happen in the future. Christian, you can pass your sojourning here because, in fear, because you have been begotten to a lively hope. May we never forget that before our regeneration, there was nothing to look forward to. 
At best, we could only surmise that there might be something beyond the weary world, but we had no hope. You'll not see the, you will see the word begotten elsewhere in Scripture. For example, John 3.16. But in this passage here, where he says begotten, this addition of the words us again has begotten us again to make that phrase these three words in English are actually one word in Greek. And it seems, it appears, Peter made up his own word. Because it's not anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, it's not anywhere else in Greek literature. It's only here. And Peter uses this word. That means begotten again. But the idea of this is, this idea of being begotten again, in other words, let me use it, put it in a phrase that is familiar to us. Born again. Born again to a hope. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. But he gave you life and you were born again to a hope. Brothers and sisters, you can live a holy life in this temporal world because you are born again. Your hope is in the Lord who has created in you a new life. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But not only must we live holy because we are born again, born again to a hope, but we can also live holy lives because here and now we are kept by God. In verse 4, we read about an inheritance. God has not only preserved our inheritance, but he also guards the heirs so that the inheritance will be then given to someone. It makes no sense to have an inheritance without an heir. And so God protects the heir to fulfill his purpose. What good would there be to have an inheritance with no one to inherit it? So God keeps us. And here is something incredible to consider. The word kept here is a martial term. What do I mean by that? It means guarded. It implies having a garrison around it. It means to keep as in a garrison or fortress or as with a military watch. The idea here is that there was a faithful guardianship exercised over those born again. It's like a castle surrounding you. A garrison, a guard is on watch to guard against the approach of the enemy. God keeps you. We sang about it on Sunday. That nothing will take you from his hand. No Satan's plan, no scheme of man will pluck you from my Savior's hand. He's got you. He keeps you. He keeps his own. So we see that we are to live holy lives because we are born again. And because we are kept by God. But finally, we're to live holy lives in this temporal world because we can anticipate a future where we will be presented to God for his glory. Verse 7 that says that we will be found, and in, it's in the context of the trine of gold. And the argument is this, gold is a perishable thing. And comes to an end with the rest of the world. 
or is worn away by handling, or sometimes it's just lost. And yet, men, we take great pains to test it and to show that uh, it contains no dross. And we do so, how do we measure, how do we test gold and how do we strengthen it? We do so by means of fire. How much more then may we expect in a fiery trial to test the character of our belief in the unseen Christ? And the time will come when the gold will be inspected and that great judge and all those spectators watching will find that the testing was sufficient and the character of his own that he has held is satisfactory. And how are we going to be found? We're going to be found unto praise. That word found unto praise is a Hebraism, meaning found to be a matter of praise. In other words, when God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, wow. And it's nothing you did. It's because he put you through the fiery trials and he conformed you to the image of his son. And so when he looks at you and he's looking and he says, well done. It's as if he's saying that to his son, because he is. Peter says praise, and this is the language that will be used about these men's faith. He then says honor, the rank in which they will be placed. And then he uses the word glory to praise, honor, and glory, the fervent admiration according to them. These three words correspond to our words, our acts, and our feelings. I'm reminded of a story that I think continues continues Peter's analogy here to gold and helps illustrate for us the importance of living holy lives in this temporary world, and I'll conclude it with this. Once there was a goldsmith, and his young new apprentice, so willing to learn, asked him about the process of purifying gold. The goldsmith, eager to teach, told the apprentice that what they were going to do is they were going to heat up this gold until it was molten, and, uh, and then they would get it as hot as they can because the hotter they could get the gold, the more impurities would burn out, and the hotter it would become, the dross would come to the top. The goldsmith said, then once that dross comes to the top, we're going to scrape it off, and we'll throw that out. And the apprentice asked, then is the gold pure? And the goldsmith said, oh, no, we'll do that again. We'll put it back into the fire, and we'll heat it up, And more imperfections are going to get burned out, and the dross is going to come up, and we'll scrape that off and throw it away. And the apprentice said, well, then is it pure gold? Oh, no, we're going to do this again. And we'll do it again and again and again. And the apprentice says to his boss, well, boss, how do we know when the gold is pure? And the the goldsmith says, that's easy. It's pure when I can look down into the gold and I can see my reflection." We have been born again. We are held by God. We will be presented to him. And for these reasons, we must live holy lives in a world that seems to be falling apart. But even in the chaos of the culture around us, God is perfecting us, conforming us, making us So that when he looks down into our lives, he sees his son. Peter has much more to say about this. Perhaps another time we'll go in further into 1 Peter. But for now, Christian, 
be encouraged and pass your time here of sojourning in fear. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these that have listened this evening. I pray that you would help us to live holy lives so that we would pass our time of sojourning here in fear. Father, not afraid of this world, but in reverential awe of you. Help us to do that better. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.